We are continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount, so we're still in Matthew chapter 5, and um, this will be the end of chapter 5 um, this week. Later in, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandment is, and we talk about this a lot because it's kind of a big deal when they ask Jesus what's the greatest commandment, and he famously says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind, and he says the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And what's interesting is the response of those who asked him trying to trick him and trap him is that they didn't ask anything about the first, the greatest commandment. He didn't, they didn't ask anything about love the Lord your God. What they asked was about the neighbor part. And the question they asked is, who is my neighbor? We have to ask the question of why, why are they asking that question? What are they actually doing? And what they are actually doing is that they are looking for ways to not obey what Jesus has given them to obey. They want to know where are the conditions where they cannot obey that. And of course, Jesus gives them an answer that turns it around on them. And the parable that he tells is the parable of the Good Samaritan, where the point is, isn't, the question isn't who is your neighbor, the question is what kind of a neighbor are you? Ligon Duncan is a um, great theologian and pastor and he one time I heard him give a fantastic sermon where he had he addressed this and he said the problem was that they were looking for loopholes they were given the command and immediately they were trying to figure out what are the loopholes how do I get around this and many of us if you can remember what it was like to be a child you know what that's like where you're looking for ways, you hear something, you're told something, and you think like, okay, but how do I, how do I get around this on a, on a technicality? And ultimately, this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were doing. They're setting themselves up as the righteous and looking for loopholes in God's law to justify their own sin and their own desires. And my point throughout this and throughout the Sermon on the Mount and and this series so far is that we are no different. That we sometimes treat the Bible as, as a legal document that we can twist or quote out of context to justify our own sinful attitudes and desires. And we then cling to anyone's interpretation that backs up the understanding that we want to have. And that is the world that Jesus is in when he gives this sermon. And we talked about how he then has these six statements of, you have heard it said, but I say. He is confronting the understandings and the interpretations of a people who were looking for loopholes, looking for ways to get around what God was asking them to do. And so today we address the remaining two statements on divorce and oaths. And I am very mindful, just like I was a couple weeks ago when I talked about adultery, I'm very mindful of how that can make us feel on edge, how very painful, especially the topic of divorce is. And just like a couple of weeks ago when we talked about adultery, I just ask that you trust me. But more importantly, that you trust God in his word, that he is a good father. We are very aware of the reality of the pain that this causes. But keep in mind throughout this sermon that the issue, the problem, is that 
the people are looking for loopholes. If you keep that in the back of your mind and thinking that and even be able to confront that in your own mind when things come up in your own heart, in your own mind, to ask yourself that question, is this, am I looking for a loophole here? Am I looking for some way to justify what's going on or what I already want to be the case or what I believe to be true? Am I looking for that or am I trusting God? Because what the Pharisees had done is create a world where they can basically do whatever they want and be the standard of righteousness and justified in their disobedience. So verse 31, chapter 5. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. We have to understand what culturally is going on at the time here. What this would have been, what, this, what they were interpreting, um, is, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament, but one example that they would have been interpreting was, comes from Deuteronomy 24. When Moses writes, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. So there's this idea that like what, what they're doing is setting the woman free, setting the wife free. And yes, it is aimed at men, but that's because men in this age, they were the ones with the power to, um, to divorce. Now, obviously, that is not the case. It goes both ways, and so you can, you can address that to both. But what Jesus is addressing is this understanding that if a husband found indecency in his wife, that what he needed to do is give a certificate of divorce. And what that certificate of divorce meant was that the woman was then free to get remarried or to um, pursue some other life. Uh, But we're going to talk about how that wasn't actually so great anyway. But they were free to do that. And then if they did get remarried, then they would not be guilty of adultery. And there was a question about what does indecency mean? And basically, the, the, the thrust of this was if a husband has a, a reason to divorce his spouse, his wife, he should write a certificate of divorce. It was meant to protect the wife in the sense of, like, if you're going to divorce her, then give her a certificate so that she can, in, in essence, start over. If that makes sense. So it wasn't about the divorce so much. It was about like how do you then um, protect and at least give this woman a chance for survival because a, a divorced woman by herself or an abandoned woman by herself in that time would not survive. But as what happens with the law so often, we take what is meant for good and play the angles and use it to justify our own desires to serve ourselves rather than to love others. So what this had turned into by Jesus' day was that if a husband had any reason to want to divorce, then as long as he gave a certificate of divorce to his wife, he could divorce her. One ridiculous, seemingly ridiculous, but I verified through many sources that this is accurate. One example that is pointed out is that if your wife, if husbands, if your wife um, burned dinner or oversalted the food, that was reason for divorce. Now I want you to think for a second. It sounds funny and ridiculous, 
But imagine yourself in the first century as a woman who is, burns dinner and is divorced and given a certificate of divorce. What happens to them? Well, they could possibly remarry. But if they did remarry, as we see with the woman at the well, they are still second-class citizens at that point. They are seen as damaged goods. They are not of value. Or they could go and live as a servant in someone else's house. Or they could become a prostitute. That's what happened to women who were given a certificate of divorce. And it happened sometimes because the food was too salty. So men were taking what was meant to be a mercy for those caught in a marriage that was unfaithful and turning it into a way to get rid of a wife they no longer desired with no consequences to themselves and terrible consequences for the wife. And as long as the man sent her with a certificate of divorce, it was considered righteous. Do you see how twisted that is? It's not even like, oh, well, it's understandable, or well, you know, it's not the best situation. It was seen as righteous. That is the deception of our heart, to take what God intends for good and manipulate it and twist it and use it for evil. Obviously, this is all, like I said, aimed at men because they had the power to divorce. But today, divorce is an equal opportunity endeavor. And the reasons haven't gotten a whole lot better than oversalting food. I hear all the time, we've grown apart. He isn't the man I first married. I was young and foolish. We don't have the same goals. I'm not happy, and it's better for me to be happy. And as a pastor, probably the number one question I get about divorce is answered by the number one legalistic answer that is given. When is divorce allowed? Answer, adultery, and if an unbelieving spouse leaves you, which is citing Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, when he says, if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so, In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. And so people ask, like, so when is it allowed? And even when people talk about their divorce, they say, well, it was was biblical. And it was biblical because there was unfaithfulness or my spouse was an unbeliever. As if it was some kind of a legal loophole rather than the heart of what's going on. But the question is, is it righteous? What What if you make your unbelieving spouse so miserable that they finally relent and just want to divorce you. Is that righteousness? What if you freeze out your spouse of in, from, from intimacy of any kind until they finally find it in another and it hardly bothers you because you just want to be free? Is that righteous? Is that what God is pursuing in our hearts? These are hard questions and hard issues, but as usual, we tend to miss the point of the heart. We tend to look for loopholes to justify our actions, to declare ourselves justified by a legal document rather than the heart of God. 
And God is concerned with our hearts. Consider the heart of what Paul says here in this verse. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. You can see the resignation in it. This is after he's already told the believing spouse, stay with your husband, stay with your wife. And he addresses both husbands and wives. He says, stay with them, be a witness to them, share the gospel with them, love them as Christ has loved you. And, And he's pleading with them to do that. And then he says, but if the unbelieving partner separates and leaves, then let it be so. It's it's a it's a resignation. It's a concession to the brokenness of the world. It's not a, a checkbox and just a, a, just like, well, this is, this, you're good to go. Just, you can go ahead and leave them. It's a concession to the brokenness of the world so that people could be at peace. Look at what Jesus says in, later in Matthew 19. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So there you hear the interpretation, the understanding, what they had heard said. And he answered, have you not read that that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a divorce, a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Here's the cliff's notes of that. Jesus, can we divorce for any reason, like we've always been taught? Answer, it's not the way it was supposed to be. Well, then why did Moses allow it? Because of your hardness of heart. In other words, it was never meant as an option as long as the right boxes or qualifications are fulfilled. It was meant as a kindness to release a spouse in devastatingly broken situations. I'm going to say that again. It was never meant as an option as long as the right boxes or qualifications are met. It was meant as a kindness to release a spouse in devastatingly broken situations. And even in those circumstances, it is still painful. As always, what God requires is that we follow him on the road to abundant life. God hates divorce because divorce is destructive even in situations where it is permissible or it is we are resigned to like this is the only course of action it is still full of pain it is a bad answer to a worse problem divorce in many ways is like chemotherapy chemotherapy is those of you've been through it or watch someone you love go through it, is painful. It drains you. It's because it's poison. It's literally poisoning your body. But it's poisoning your body because it's trying to fight something that is killing you even faster. 
And people often look as, at divorce as freedom, as a fresh start, but it isn't. It is a poison. It is painful. It's just that sometimes that poison is better than the illness. And often what I see what we have to deal with first and foremost is even in the church, the reasons for divorce then and now would be akin to asking for chemotherapy to battle a cold. God doesn't want that. What he wants is for you to receive the gift that has been given to you and have abundant life. And the way Jesus then deals with this is he says, lifts up what marriage is. They're asking all these questions about divorce. When is it permissible? When is it okay? And Jesus is wanting to point them to something bigger. Look again at, at Matthew 19 here. Verse 5, he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Ultimately, to give too much attention to the negatives is to miss the positive of what Jesus is saying. Marriage is this incredible gift given to us by God. And we're looking for loopholes to get out of that gift. Paul says in Ephesians 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, quoting Jesus, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So a few weeks ago, Lauren and I got to speak at a marriage conference um, where we, we got to team teach and we both, I, I sat on a stool for her like she, because Lauren sat on a stool and sat at the table and so I was super calm for most of the time because I just didn't want to like be like dancing around like some, you know, lunatic while Lauren's sitting there trying to be calm and being the, the rational one. And it worked for the most part, like I, I pretty much held my own in that. Um, but we got to share on marriage, and we got to talk about unity in, in marriage, unity in the gospel, and how do you bond together even when you're very different? Because if you know Lauren and me at all, you know that we are incredibly different. And what we told them right off the bat, and, and I, I don't know if we're going to get invited back, because <laughs> what we told them off the bat was marriage is really hard. Like marriage is not easy. And marriage is not about you. And there are a lot of people who will be like, oh yeah, no, I know it's about me and my spouse. No, it's not even about your spouse either. It's about God. Like, that's the point. It's not about a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not about romance. It's not about being fulfilled in your life or accomplishing your goals. It is about God. It is a picture of the gospel. This mystery is profound, but Paul is saying it refers to Christ and the church. It refers to to his steadfast covenant love, his unfailing faithfulness, that two become one, this gift of intimacy. Tim Keller once said, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. That is what our marriages are meant to be. A picture 
of how God loves us. To know someone and to love them in knowing them. And you might say, well, I would try to do that, but that's really hard. You don't know my spouse. By the way, if you're thinking that right now, I wouldn't say that out loud because they might be within earshot. But I can see it on your face. Especially in Lawrence. But let me ask you this. If your marriage is not primarily about your happiness, but is about putting flesh to the gospel, what better opportunity could you have than when your spouse is unlovable? Right? Like, if it's about how God loves us, if I get to display that, what better way to demonstrate God's love than when you are loving your spouse when they are unlovable? Because it declares the gospel of the one who loved us when we were unlovable. God shows his love for us and that we will, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what Jesus is doing in all this and what Paul is going to do also later is try to steer them around and rather than asking if something is grounds for divorce, why not ask, can the gospel shine even brighter in these circumstances? Like what would it look like if I stopped looking for loopholes and a reason for divorce and started looking for ways to love my spouse more? What if I sought the ways of the kingdom and had a soft heart? and wasn't hardened by the world and about what I am or am not getting and angry and obsessive. What if instead I was soft and meek and humble? I've never yet seen a divorce between two people who have a kingdom heart. That's what we're called to in marriage. It's a beautiful gift. And you can see how twisted it is when we would look at this beautiful gift and look for loopholes to get around it. Because it's hard. It's inconvenient. But I'd be remiss if I didn't then address the question of, well, what if you are in a really difficult marriage? The kind that Jesus is referring to and that Moses was referring to and that Paul will refer to. What if you are in that kind of a situation? Here's my plea. Let us walk with you. Let us help. We've seen many people receive help and see their marriages healed and they have found new life. And that is always God's desire. And we've also seen many situations where one spouse is seeking restoration, but the other becomes more and more hardened, leaving divorce as the only option or the only way forward. And those are the situations where Paul is talking about when he says, be at peace, so let your church family come around you and say, go, be at peace. You're not enslaved, be free from this. But can I just tell you, this is not a decision you want to make in isolation. 
None of us can see clearly when we are distraught or blinded by sinful desires or anger or bitterness or resentment or hurt. And the question I have, like I've asked before, is what do you, what do you have to lose? This may come as a shock to you, but I don't have any legal authority over you. Right, so if I, if I say, you know, I think you can work through this. Like, I think we could, I, I think God can be glorified in this. I think we can, let's take steps to try to bring restoration and reconciliation. And you say no, and you go file for divorce. No one's going to arrest you. So there's nothing to lose. But what if it could look differently? What if there was hope offered in the gospel? What if a miracle could happen? So if you are in one of those difficult situations and you just feel at a loss, just know that we want to be with you. You will not find law from us. You will not respond to your situations by saying, well, the Bible says stay married, so stay married. We'll talk about the heart of what God desires and we'll talk about the gospel and we'll talk about restoration and we'll pray with you and we will weep with you. And there are several in this room who could give testimony to that very fact. And what if you are in a situation where you have this in your past? Just know that we are for you. We love you. Paul's plea and desire is to be at peace. To move forward trusting Jesus. Here's here's the big thing. I have seen so much in my life in ministry that I can testify to you that Jesus is trustworthy. Now, I know that sounds like theology 101, and maybe it is, but it is the foundation and the rock of our entire lives. He is worthy. You can trust him. If he calls you down a hard road, he will do that for your good. If he releases you from a painful and destructive marriage, then he will do that with you for your good. And he will renew and restore and redeem and make all things right. He's not ashamed of you, and neither are we. We are all trying to pursue Jesus and trust him more and more every single day. All I ask is don't do that alone. Don't isolate yourself in that pain, in that brokenness, in that hurt. Let other people who love you point you to Jesus and trust in him and be free. It always bears repeating in these hard moments. Just, I'm just always so thankful I'm always so thankful. I know I said this two weeks ago, but I'm going to say it again right now. I'm so thankful for this church that I don't have to artificially soften anything. That we can just look at it and say, God is good, and he wants our good. And we can just trust him in that. So I hope that you're hearing that, and I'm pleading that if you're in that situation, let us know, let us help you. We love you. We want to walk with you. Now, Jesus attaches oaths to this. 
I wanted to spend most of the time on divorce. And so, but oaths is important in this. It makes sense. He goes from a big vow of marriage and people looking for ways to get out of their vow to then the everyday vows and promises that we make. And he, he says this. Again, you have heard it that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And so what he's referring to are passages like this in Numbers 30. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. And Jesus says, do not swear at all. Why? It's not a ban on oaths per se. We know that. I could cite other things. Paul um, calls God as his witness in, in multiple places. God swears an oath in multiple places. And then we actually, we do that all the time, just like what we were talking about with, with marriage, that we take vows. And so that's not the point. What is going on here? And like with everything else, what was meant to be a positive command to fulfill what you have promised to do became a legal loophole to get away with not doing it. So there became different levels in their understanding. So when he's saying you have heard it said, what they had heard said was there are different levels and degrees of oaths. One commentary pointed out that one rabbi says that if you swear by Jerusalem, you are not bound by your vow. But if you swear toward Jerusalem, then you are bound by your vow. So the direction of your swearing is how we know whether you are bound by your vow or not. So it basically came down to playground antics of crossing your fingers or pinky promising, right? Like the kind of ridiculousness. But again, lest we look at them and judge, we say that we do similar things, hedging our language, crafting what we say. And ultimately, these oaths that they were using, their words that they were using, were used to manipulate people to get them to a place where they couldn't question what was being said. If you swore by God or by Jerusalem, then you're backing somebody into a corner where they couldn't weigh what you said or your character. They just had to uh, agree with it, almost like, like swearing on someone's grave where you're just like, okay, well, now you've made it about that and, and I can't even hear what you're saying. So it's kind of a way of manipulating or to, to leave themselves an out to get around what they had said they would do or to get people to feel the way that they wanted people to feel about something. And Jesus says it's evil. By the way, not to mention that it's ridiculous. Like you can't read that. I mean, at least I, whenever I read this passage, I just think, how ridiculous is it? Like you can't swear by the earth or by heaven. Like they're not yours. This is the throne of God. Like even your own head. Like what are you going to swear to? Right? Like... If I said, hey, if I said, hey, there's an ostrich in my office. And if it's not true, you get to go live in the White House. Like, it's just nonsense. 
There's no ostrich in my office, FYI. And I can't let you live in the White House. So what matter? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And that's what people were doing. Like, I swear by heaven and earth. What does that mean? You don't own heaven and earth. You don't even own the hairs on your head. You can't promise any of this. So I think part of what's being said is stop it. This is nonsense. It's ridiculous. And you've completely missed the point of oaths and vows. You have turned them for evil. Let what you say be simply yes or no. In other words, be a, be a person of your word. Don't have to add things. Don't, don't, don't get caught in those games. Don't manipulate people's understanding of things. Don't twist it so that they agree with you or understand, like come around to your point of view. And this is so critical if we're going to be salt and light. It's so critical. James says later, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here's why it's so important. If people cannot trust us to be truthful with the small things, how will they trust us with big things? How will they get a true picture of our God who always fulfills his vow, who always speaks truth. So I want to address a few examples of this in our culture as we wrap up. And I just want you to know that if your defenses come up and you start looking for loopholes, just know before you heard this, I wrote it, and had all those defenses popping up in my own heart and almost left some things out. But I didn't. So here we go. We, how do we do this in our own culture? One of the ways is it shows up in our fear of commitment, our hedging our bets about committing to things. I don't know too many people who struggle with this. Here's a situation that, is in, that we, I think, probably have in common. You ever get an invitation to a party or an event and it asks you to RSVP? How many of you delay that as long as possible and pray that there's a maybe option, right? <laughs> I'm glad to see there's some truthful people in here. Some of you are just like, I just say no. What are you talking about? All right, never mind. That's a different, that's a different issue. I'm a man of my word. I say I'm not going to that party and I don't go. So, all right, great. Kudos. But we do this. And what's so funny about it is the same people who do the maybe or hold off on the longest are the same people who complain when people do that to them. Right? Like we, we just do this. We don't even think twice about it. Now, of course, we're not saying like, well, sometimes there is a maybe. Like sometimes someone asks me to do something and, and I don't know yet if I can. We're not talking about genuine qualifiers. Like, well, if I get back from this other appointment in time or if I get this thing done first, what Jesus is addressing, remember, is leaving the loopholes so you can selfishly determine what you, that you don't want to do what you said you would do. And so the big issue with this, as far as like commitment and committing to things, is have a desire to give a straight answer and back it up. And most often, especially in our culture here in the Midwest, we tend to follow up, tend to, percentage-wise, culturally, we tend to back up what we say. If we say we're going to do something, by and large, we do it. I lived on the West Coast. Someone saying they were going to do something meant nothing. Now, there were other things 
that they did, they were awesome. Like when we lived in California, people were radically generous. They'd give you anything. They would just like so many, but if they told you, hey, I'm gonna be there at three o'clock to help you move, that's not happening. It's not happening. And, and you just had to be kind of aware of that. But that's the thing is we are supposed to be people who say like, okay, have a desire to give a real answer. Here, our issue isn't so much that. It's usually on the other end. We're afraid to commit because what if something else happens? What if something else pops up? What if I can't make it? What if there's a freak snowstorm in June and the roads get bad? Like, I can't promise I'm going to be there. If I promise I'm going to be there, I have to be there no matter what. The heart of this is let's have a desire to give a straight answer and back it up. If you're asked to help something or help with somebody, whatever it is, to give it, have a desire. Some of us say maybe because we know we're going to say no eventually, but we just feel like it's just easier to let the person down easily. And like over time, it's not actually. That's actually a manipulative way to communicate with people. Jesus would say, let your yes be yes and no be no. If you're going to say no, just say no and be at peace. Or say yes and fulfill that. Another one is we like to stretch the truth. We like to tell stories and exaggerate things and twist things a little bit. And just, you know, and, and what, why we do that is because we want to get the reaction that we think is appropriate. So if I, you know, the, the classic tale of catching a fish, which I've never done, but I hear that you can catch a fish. And um, that's not true. I did one time catch a fish. I mean, the guy I was with put the pole out and put the bait out, did all that and put it in the line. But then I held the pole when the fish caught it, like bit. And then he pulled it in and then he cleaned it. But then I ate it. I ate it. So that's like 20% mine. So but like when you say like, okay, I caught this fish and you know, it was this big and then like it keeps growing over time. Well, why do we do that? Do we do that because we're just filthy liars? No, you do that because you were excited about this fish that you caught. But when you tell somebody, hey, I caught a fish this big and you look at their face and they're like, eh. you're like no, no, that's not the right reaction. You need to have this one. So you're like, oh, this big. oh, okay. Now there it is. And so we stretch it until we get the reaction that we think is the right reaction. And what is that but manipulation? We're manipulating their understanding. They're supposed to be as impressed as I was. They're supposed to be as enraged as I was. They're supposed to be as excited as I was. And so we stretch the truth. Rather, just tell the truth and then say how you felt about that and why you felt that way. You can know that if I tell you, like, I caught a fish this big, and I'm really excited because I'd never caught a fish before. You say, oh, okay, that's great. I don't have to exaggerate it. So we stretch it. Another one is we present something in a one-sided way. So we tell the truth about the things that we tell about the situation, but we don't tell other things that would give a different picture of it, right? So everything I said was the truth, Oh man, this is, a, this is a bad example. There's a bad, uh, those of you that don't know me super well should know there's voices that go on inside of my head and there's one that is very unbridled and there's another very responsible voice that keeps that one in check most of the time, especially when I'm up here. He almost just lost. <laughs> but he didn't. It's going to include an argument and my wife and we're just not going there. They're just not doing that. See, he, he's so sneaky. He just gets it in there. 
But like I could just give you one side of the story and you could say like, oh, that's terrible. I can't believe those people said those things to you. And I just conveniently leave out all the things that I said or I did. And why do we do that? Because I want you to have the understanding that I have. I want, what's important is that you see me as the good guy, that you're on my side. So I'm going to tell you what you need to know so you arrive at the conclusion that I believe is right. Again, this is manipulation. News media outlets are notorious for this. Sometimes they outright lie or present false facts, but most of the time it's just incomplete. It's a half-truth. And it's done that way to elicit the response that we want. We manipulate people into believing what we think they should believe about a situation, and it's evil. So one help with that is, I was always taught in writing a persuasive paper, representing, if you're going to represent the opposing view, do so in a way that a person holding that view would say is fair. It's just a good exercise. So if you're going to say, if we're going to make an argument about something, even that's really, something really important, and we say, well, this is why I believe this, and, and this is what the other side is saying, represent the other side in a way that someone who holds that view would say, that's fair. Yeah, that's, that's what I believe. That's how I see that. That's having integrity. And we know that because how frustrated do you get when someone misrepresents your point of view? Like, nothing good ever comes after, oh, so you're just saying that, like, if you've ever been in a situation like that, it's really frustrating, because you're like, no, that's not what I'm saying. That's not my point. But that's done to manipulate understanding. We're out of time, so we can't talk about sarcasm and humor. Just too bad. All right, let me just say this. This one stings a little for me because I like to joke. And I use a lot of irony or sarcasm, depending on your definitions. And every time I preach on something like this, this is, this is one that I felt a little defensive about. And so I can relate. If you've ever felt defensive during a sermon, just know, like, I, I feel that too. And I used to really justify my use of humor because it was funny. And I always thought that funny was a justification for anything. But it's not. Um, some of you have heard this story before, but when I was in youth ministry, I would joke with the kids all the time, and we had fun, and we would laugh, and, and that was good. But one time a friend um, brought, or one of our students brought a friend with her to youth group, and she introduced me to her friend, and she said, this is our youth pastor, Jay. Don't believe anything he says unless it's about Jesus or the Bible. And I felt this stabbing pain of conviction in my heart. If they can't trust you in the small things, why will they believe you in the big things? And that led to a lot of repentance for me, confession of sin. And, and just dealing with that and wrestling through. And so for a while, I just like got rid of all humor and just didn't ever use it at all. And I had to wrestle with, okay, is that the law? Am I just saying like, okay, well, as long as I don't have humor, then I'm fine. And obviously that's not the case. 
and finally getting around to a place of realizing like, well, we're called to be kingdom people, to love people well. And so I got to this place where I, I felt at peace with saying that, you know, if, if my humor brings joy to people around me, then great. That's the redeemed version. If, if the humor allows people to hear something that normally they'd be, their defenses would be up, and if it lets some of those defenses down a little bit or, or makes people feel like they can handle that a little bit better or brings just, like I said, joy, then awesome. But if it makes people feel uneasy, like they're going to be mocked or if they're going to be the butt of a joke or if they have to be on guard so they don't look gullible, then it's wrong and it's evil. And I confess that this is something that I fight. And so if I have done that to you, please know I'm sorry. And I hope that you can forgive me and know that that is not my intent and not who I want to be. We want to be people that make others feel at ease. Like if you're a good storyteller, tell good stories. You don't have to exaggerate the truth. If you're really persuasive, be persuasive. You don't have to manipulate people's understanding. If you're funny, be funny. You don't have to make people feel nervous around you to accomplish that. We want to be people that make others feel at ease, people who can be trusted, people who are earnest and sincere. And when we are, we'll be people who are trusted to communicate the things that matter. And that's the bottom line with both of these, that these are about loving people well. These are not about taking things, our words, and looking for loopholes and ways to get around what we have committed to do or ways to justify ourselves in our own painful circumstances but rather it is to receive the gifts as God has given them to us and to receive them in abundant life. We aren't to use people or manipulate people to serve our purposes and when we're done with them, to toss them aside. We are to live selflessly, loving our neighbor as ourselves, being salt and light and trusting God to bring about all that is right and good. So again, if you are in a troubled marriage and are looking for a way out, talk to us. By the way, I, I kind of mentioned this, but if you have a divorce in your past and you never dealt with that, you never felt at peace with that, you, never, you actually don't know what's behind that door, talk to us. Again, we love you. And we can connect you with people who have walked that road and the desires for you to be at peace. Or maybe you realize how you've not been letting your yes be yes or your no be no. I would encourage you, repent and receive forgiveness. Don't defend yourself, but let God be your defense. His righteousness be your righteousness. Trust him with the gifts that he's given to you. And confess your sin to others and pursue the greater thing today. We want to be a people that don't look for loopholes, but look for abundant life. Why would we want to get out of that? He is worthy of our full trust. So pursue the greater thing. Pursue the kingdom. Let's pray. 
Father, you are good and holy. We love you. Lord, I know these are, these are hard things that we have discussed today because they're hard things that you put in your word and we know that you do that in part so that we will wrestle with you and with your spirit. But we know, God, that you do not put anything in here to harm us or to shame us. That shame and harm and destruction are tools of the evil one. You are a father of mercy and of grace and of abundant life. So Lord, we just want to be able to trust you more. You are worthy of our trust. You are faithful even when we are faithless. You are good even when we don't see it. Lord, what I feel just right now in this moment is just we just, just need to trust you. Believe that you are good. Believe that you are trustworthy with any of our situations, whether it's our marriages or our past or our words, whether it's gifts that we have of storytelling or persuasion or humor. God, that we would just give those to you and trust you to do with them, that we wouldn't figure out ways to make it okay in our own eyes. We wouldn't create laws of our own design that have shades of you in it, but God, that we would just pursue your heart in it, that we would desire all that you have for us and nothing that comes from the evil one and nothing that comes from our sin, and that we would trust that that is the way to life eternal and a way to abundant life of joy and peace and hope and wonder and glory. Let us let go of our loopholes and forsake them and just pursue you, loving you with our entire heart and soul and mind and body and loving our neighbors as ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.